The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for the truth that you have sent your Son to this world to be God with us. As we just sang, fulfillment of ancient words. Thanks for that and bless your name, planning it and for initiating it and for accomplishing it. And I pray this morning, in some ways, Lord, this, this morning's sermon could be summarized by that line with the emphasis on God. God is with us. In the midst of everything else that's with us, God is too. You've done that, and I pray for more grace this morning. Essentially, Lord, that you would help your people to believe that you have actually done that. You have come to be with us and are so close to us, Lord, that you even indwell us, your people, individually. You dwell within the midst of us gathered corporately. Give us eyes to see that and faith to believe. Would you make your word clear here this morning, Lord? As that simple point is elaborated on in this passage before us, would you make it clear? Would you grow us in understanding and in faith? Would you bless your people? Bless us with a sweet and holy contentment. Bless us with a contentment that is good for us and is honoring to you because it comes from you, not from some other cooked up human source, but it comes from you, given by you, as you strengthen us and cause us to lean on you. Do this work in your people here this morning and cause it to grow in the days that follow. We look to you for it, and we will be grateful for it when it happens. Carry out your will in your people to your great praise and for our good. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Philippians chapter 4 where we find what is in form a thank you note. Verses 10 through 20 revisit the topic of a gift that the Philippians had sent to Paul in the hands of their messenger Epaphroditus. We've seen this before in this letter. As mentioned before, Paul had talked about it. comes up again here as Paul now says, thank you for that gift, but says so in such a peculiar way that it draws our attention. He's, he's doing something with, with how and what he says here. And he draws us in and is going to show us a unique gospel angle in a thank you note. Which is always his concern, of course. He is always forwards and backwards, always most concerned to preach the gospel to himself and to everyone with whom he has contact. And he's wrapping it up here in, in this very unusual setting. 
really, he could have already ended the letter. As we saw last week, he gave us his kind of final instructions. When you walk out of here, here's what you should be thinking about, and here's what you should be doing. Think about these things, practice these things. The the twin commandments in last week's passage. He wants us to set our minds on all that is good, to fill our minds with, give mental attention with all that, to all that is good, first and foremost Christ, of course, but then all the good things that are in the world. Give attention to those things too. And walk out of here then acting, putting into practice that which I have taught you and that which I have modeled for you. The end. Oh, by the way, thanks for the money. That's kind of where this sits in the letter. It seems, feels like an, an odd add-on. But of course, he doesn't say it at all like that. He says it very differently. So oblique, in fact, that some have accused Paul of being ungrateful, which is to miss the point. He wants to preach the gospel to them in a thank you note. So, here's what I'm going to be pushing towards this morning by, by way of three observations, the third one of which is a little shorter, so if you're worried about time, we'll Okay. Here's the point, though, this morning. God teaches us Christ-centered contentment in all circumstances. God teaches us Christ-centered contentment in all circumstances. That's what he's going to bring out in this note. Let me read it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians, you yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This morning's passage, and I'm going to mainly be focusing on the first paragraph, verses 10 through 13. Make three observations, and here's the first one. Human relationship that is Christ-centered generates much joy and praise in life. So human relationship that is Christ-centered generates much, generates great joy and praise in life. We can observe this rising from the text kind of between the lines, if you will, because the main emphasis for this paragraph is is on contentment, which we're going to talk about, and the main emphasis next week from the the second half of this note is on God's gift and God's blessing, God's provision, 
So in neither place do we really get main emphasis on the reality that lies behind both of those main ideas and behind this whole note, this idea of, of a human relationship that Paul has with these Philippians. So I want to start there to kind of talk about some of the backdrop while acknowledging that it's not the main point. We're going to move on to contentment, which is the focus. But we have to start here with human relationship that is about Christ. Or to use the language of the passage itself, human relationship that is about gospel partnership. Christ-centered, gospel partnership. Terms that I... I'm going to use interchangeably because we recall, talking about the gospel, the gospel can be expressed even in just a symbol of the cross, or it can be expressed in a sentence, what God has done in Christ to save his people. Or, as we talked about this some weeks back, it can be elaborated on to be a massive, massive web because every one of those little words there, God, you can draw off who's God. Triune God who created all things. Well, created how? Triune, what does that mean? You can expand and expand and expand. So the gospel can be the central, even the, the symbol of the cross. It can be a sentence. It can be a massive web. So you can summarize this teaching about what God has done to save people in his son. You can call it the gospel. You can call it Christ. What I'm talking about here is that relationships, human relationship, the connecting of people that is about, that is centered on, woven together with Christ produces great joy and praise in this life. That's what we're working towards. We see it, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul is deeply delighted. He has great joy. And remember, again, he's in prison about to be on trial for his life. And once again, we see this note throughout the whole book, joy. He's been about joy from the very beginning. What is he in great joy over? Because you have revived your concern for me. He says, literally, your thinking for me has blossomed again. This is kind of like a, a, a term of of plants and have growing things that have gone into a season of hibernation and have sprouted again, have blossomed, have taken life. Your concern or your thinking about me has blossomed again and I'm delighted because you finally sent me some money and I really needed it. No. That's not what he says. He repeatedly makes clear that it's not about the money. Verse 11, immediately, not that I talk about need, Says it again down a little bit later. It's not about the money. Now, of course, he is in need. The reality is being imprisoned in that time meant that you were always in need and your friends provided for your basics. So he is indeed in need, but he doesn't care about that because of the contentment point, which we're going to come to. He's got something else. He is rejoicing greatly because their concern or their thinking about him has grown, has flourished again, but it's not about the money. What is it about? Verse 14. Look ahead a little bit. Because they are sharing in his trouble, or in this sense, verse 15, sharing in that from the beginning of the gospel, they entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving. The gospel and partnership. 
Words that are very familiar and are an echo of the first thing he said in this book. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. When he's first time talking about them in joy. He says back there in the very beginning of this book, he knows he's thankful for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7 in chapter 1. They are partakers with him. That's partners with him. In grace defending the gospel with him in imprisonment and in suffering. So Paul's great delight here, he's rejoicing greatly. His great delight is found in this. That while in prison, these Christians, who for a time had, had drifted away from him, not because they wanted to, because they didn't have any opportunity to. He's clear about that too. For a time they drifted away, but while he is in prison, in the situation that is trying, the situation which he's in, he has found again their returning to him and their reaffirming and their reminding him and their restating of their commitment to him and their, their reinvigorating of their, of their union, their gospel partnership with him, their statement to him, which is shown in the fact they sent this guy all the way from Philippi with money to help them. Their statement to him, Paul, we are with you in this great cause. You, us, we're like this in this cause, this partnership in the gospel. Very different than just getting a letter from a friend. Now, I'm sure he'd be happy if he got a letter from a friend. But the statement they're making is not, how's it going, Paul? Thinking of you. Their statement is, partaker. In the way that we can. We live way over here, you're over there. But how can we be a part of this cause, of this mission, of this ministry, of this gospel spreading? Of this, how can we partake with you in the suffering? Well, the thing that we can do is we can send you money and we can send you one of our own. And he can travel, you recall from chapter 2, through sickness and near death to get it there to you. And Paul is delighted as these friends link arms with him how they can in the cause of Christ. But we're seeing here that the thing that lies behind this, and again, this is not the main point of the letter, but what lies behind it is this is a display of, of the perfect, of the sweetest chord of three strands. People, people woven together around what? Christ. The gospel. Producing great joy in him. Two Christians, two peoples or two individuals woven together and leaving out the gospel, leaving out Christ, can be a good thing. Because we, we trust that they would be woven together around something else that's good. We talked about last week, there are many things in the world that are good, that are not destructive, that are not evil, that are not bad. But inevitably, those relationships, and I'm going somewhere that I want you to think ahead of me a little bit because I'm talking about potentially your relationships. Go ahead of me. Those relationships, when, when they're woven together like that, in, inevitably, there's something missing. They, they lack something. Not destructive. They're not bad, but they just don't have the life in them. 
that God in Christ brings when He's woven in there with them. Two Christians live life together as a team. Think of, think of good friends or think of classmates or teammates. Maybe think of a marriage. Husband and wife, both Christians. Joined together around, let's take, let's take marriage, woven around kids. A good thing? Indeed. Yes. Not a bad thing. But the two of you living together, sharing life together around the purpose of, the cause of, the goal of the kids will lose some of the glory that could be shared there by the two of you. You'd lose purpose and perspective. Something about coming together around this one to make him known in each other and together to make him more known than we could separately. There's something there about giving and receiving to one another, not for the sake of one another and not even for the sake of another good thing, but for the sake of this great, high, and holy calling, this exalted one. There's something there that feeds life to us. It puts at the center of this relationship a true soul, the capital S, between us, one that is alive and who gives life. It brings down into our human relationships the air of heaven because that's what we will live in forever. The two of us woven together around Christ that He would be known, that we would live to exalt Him will be eternity. And we bring a little bit of that down to the living room or the couch or the marriage bed when we are wrapped around this third strand of Christ. And we lose it when we're not. There is great joy for us. Great joy for us. In human relationships that are woven around, that are Christ-centered. And it generates great praise in life too, because Paul rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Verse 10. His rejoicing was Godward in its direction, not towards the Philippians. Now, I'm, I'm sure he was very happy. Everything in this letter says that he loved the Philippians deeply. I'm sure he was happy and delighted as he thought about them. But what he says is that he rejoiced in the Lord. Why is that? Well, because not only is Christ the center of their, of their partnership, but he knows that Christ is the one who created the partnership. So he sits there essentially thinking, you are the author of all such relationships. You have blessed me by giving me these ones. You have encouraged me in this great work. You have provided people for me that are not about themselves and really are not even about me because I don't need people about me. I need people about Christ. And you've given them to me to partake in this life with me. Bless your name. So, to start, again, all as backdrop, think about your human relationships. And do you have 
gospel partnerships? Do you have Christ-centered weavings? Think about it. I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a friend with whom you are a friend because you, you have a common hobby. And I am not saying that husbands and wives should never talk about their kids. Of course not. But what I am saying is that very sadly, sadly, many Christians don't really have friendships with people that the friendship is dramatically about Jesus. We often have a private relationship with Jesus and a private relationship with Jesus, and then we come together over sports, hobbies. That's missing. Wrong? No. Missing something. Give consideration to it. Is your marriage about Christ? Human relationships, marriages included, that are Christ-centered, generate great joy and praise in life because you are together about another one. That's the first observation that what lies behind this whole thing, but it prepares us to move on to the main point. The main point about contentment. So here's the second observation. Christ-centered contentment can and should characterize all of life. Christ-centered contentment can and should characterize all of life. Verse 11, the reason he's not speaking about being in need, though he was in need, is that need is not his focus. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And when he says content there at the very end of verse 11, he starts to do something that we saw him do last week. In verse 8, he's taking language from the culture, kind of ripping off the culture's language and turning it. This word content was used by philosophers of that time and realized that philosophy back then was about teaching worldview and how to live your life. It wasn't about solving esoteric riddles. So he... He's taking the language of those who taught how to live, the philosophers of that day, and he's going to change it. They would use this word contentment, and what they meant and what they were commending, what they were recommending to people, was a way of life in which a person is not bothered or flustered by his circumstances or her circumstances out there. By whatever happens out there, I'm not bothered by it because in here, within my own self, I am strong within so the teaching of the day was to build up this inner strength, this, this inner stoicism. The name of these philosophers were the Stoics. Let's see where we get the term. To build up this inner strength that leaves me like this. Whatever happens out there, whether I face plenty or want, hunger or abundance, they use that language also. Paul takes that language from them too. 
So they're talking about living this unflustered, content, no matter what's going on all around me, life unfazed by it, and so is Paul. So it seems like he's brought on track with them. He's using their language, seems to be teaching Christians to live like they do, but not quite because of where he grounds this in verse 13. We're going to get to there. But there's a hint that he means something different even in verse 12. He uses their language, but he starts with, I know how to be brought low. This is such a familiar passage to us. I think it's easy for us to read this, think we know what it's about, and skip to verse 13 and think we know what that's about. What I want to invite you to do is read this again and notice that all the terms here, that one, verse 12, is different. The others are back and forth about material things, plenty and want, hunger and abundance. This one at the beginning is not. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humbled in the sense of humiliated. And that's different. He's using language that tracks with the philosophers of the day, but he starts off with something that is very opposed to the philosophers of the day. If you follow this philosophy, you would say, I'm not bothered by, I'm not flustered by all these things out there that are challenged like, like this person is. I'm strong within. Something to be proud of. I'm a self-made man or woman. I'm capable and I'm proud of it. And Paul says, I know how to be humiliated, which they would resist and shun, be indignant at, angry about, in fact. So he's about something very different here, and maybe very different than what we even think of when we hear content, because he's talking about, Christian, think about this, he's content to be debased, humiliated, brought down, thought of as nothing, regarded as the scum of the earth, to use his language from Corinthians. I'm okay with that. I'm fine. Content enough to be unfazed by that. Not in a stoic, detached sense. Not in a proud, I can sense. Not in a, that's what life is, what will be, will be sense. Not in a fatalistic sense, but content. As in, at rest. <sighs> at rest. And rejoicing always, in fact. And thankful in every circumstance, in fact. And, and not anxious. But guarded by the peace of God. And, and so content and so at rest that even those who would debase me and humiliate me and tear me down, I can turn to them and with gracious demeanor love them for their good. 
That's what he's calling us to. And I go into all the, the material about the philosophers of the day, the, the Stoics, not because it matters at all about what the Stoics thought. Who cares? But because Stoicism is alive and well today. And many Christians are confused on the point. We, we read contentment, and what we think is, I better just like, hold my breath and be okay with it. Or, I am okay with it because I'm capable. I've got it under control. And you're proud of it. And you are not remotely comfortable Some of us are not remotely comfortable with being made nothing. You resent that. Just look around at all of the, all the arguments and all the tensions and all the fears and the worries in your life. You get worried when you think, I don't know if I can handle it. And you get angry when somebody makes you low. This is the problem for us today. Even though we've all read this verse, many of us have it stenciled somewhere in our house. He's calling us to something that's ridiculous, that's way off the map for us, if we're honest. Content in every situation. In plenty. Have you ever thought about that? Read this so many times. Have you ever thought about, he's learned the secret to be content with a lot? Well, of course. Paul seems to think that's hard. Because it is. By comparison, we all have a lot. But we very often think, by comparison, I don't have anything. I want more. I need more, we convince ourselves. I've learned content in every situation. Brought low, hungry, with nothing, with everything I need, with full supply, with more food than I can eat. Whatever. Paul has learned this. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He knows something. What is it? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content with plenty and of being content with hunger. In all circumstances, whatever it is, I can handle it. I can do it all through Him who strengthens me. Do you see the flow into verse 13? The context for verse 13. Verse 13 has nothing to do with you meeting your third quarter sales goal. It has nothing to do with winning the big game. It has nothing to do with beating that disease that threatens your life. You read it right out of verse 12, right out of verse 11, you realize the context here is, how do I cope with meeting the third quarter sales goal or not meeting the third quarter sales goal? I can do either. How do I cope with winning the big game or losing it? How do I cope with this disease, come what may? That's what it's about. I can do it all. 
I can be content if I win or if I lose, if I live or if I die. I'm okay. Through Christ who strengthens me. In all circumstances, I can do it all. I can cope with it all, content with success or failure, Christ-centeredly content with success or failure in all circumstances. It characterizes all of my life. A person who has his or her mind set on Christ person who finds strength given by Christ. Christ gives strength as He works in us to will and to work according to His good pleasure. In chapter 2. He works in us to give us strength to control our wills and our thoughts so that we will begin to see and to live as if Actually, this is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven, as was prayed earlier. To give someone grace to live as if your God actually isn't your belly, he says at the end of chapter 3. To set our eyes on the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, pressing on towards heaven, chapter 4, chapter 3. Christ-centered contentment is about Christ and not contentment. Do you see that? Let me say that again. Christ-centered contentment is about Christ, not contentment. Now, it is about contentment, eventually, but it's first about Christ. What Christ gives as he strengthens this person, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he gives when he strengthens is a perspective to see and to believe and then to walk in the truth that God reigns, that God is who He says He is, that He holds me, He is doing in my life what He says He's doing, that He is carrying me all the way through to bless and not curse, to be with and not forsake, to make me all the way to heaven safe and secure with Him. That's true. We don't believe it in our discontent. If he's going to undo discontent in your life, if he's going to undo worry, if he's going to undo anger, he will undo that by strengthening you to believe the gospel and to walk in light of it. Without that, you can do nothing. Such Christ-centered contentment should and can characterize our lives. This is the great, this is a great blessing of the cross that God has given to us. Now, indeed, in the cross, He has given us marvelous blessings like eternal life, forgiveness of sin, union with Him. But here and now, one thing that is delivered to us because of the cross is this 
great contentment. <sighs> the ability to live like that. <sighs> and not just in a resigned way, but actually huh, in a rejoicing way. The life that you want to live in joy and not in anxiety, but content come what may. He has delivered that to you in the cross. And we are unbelievers consistently. And so in more grace, He undertakes to teach us. Which takes me to the third point which is the short one. The last observation. This contentment is learned, taught to us by God as central to Christian maturity. This contentment is learned, taught to us by God as central to Christian maturity. Verse 11 again says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. When he comes back to it in verse 12, it says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Now, verse 12 is, is a different word, a different nuance there. 11 is pretty straightforward, but 12 has a, a bit of a flavor of initiation into a society, which is why your translation probably says, learned the secret. And it's passive. So we, we might say it like, I have been learned the secret. I've been taught. So I've learned something. I've been taught something. Well, by whom? Make a comment about something that's not the point. There is much that parents and teachers should think about this, that contentment is a learned process. And you can build into kids, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a parent, you can build into kids helpful pieces that God may then take to join them together. But you can build into kids the ability of self-control and deferred gratification, the ability to say no to one thing right now. It's very helpful. To build a mental grid of personal discipline is, is a helpful thing. It is not the whole answer. But we undermine this work as we, who perhaps ourselves have not learned it, give in to kids and give them what they want right away just to make the conflict go away. That's what I want. So, as a side note, it's worth pointing that out. You can lay tracks for kids. You can help if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, or in some way have some influence on children. You can lay tracks for this. We live in an instant gratification world, and contentment is, is hard to build. So you can help with that, but of course that's not the point. Because who taught Paul? God. Paul has learned, God has learned him. Paul is working for contentment and God is at work in him to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God is the teacher. And he has delivered to us this in, 
in our salvation. He has delivered to us the, the real, full, hearty truth that it is under His good, sovereign hand. He has delivered that reality to us, has told us that, and then is going a step beyond that to actually work it into us because we, we receive that truth. We look at those facts and we say, but that cannot be given this. So he undertakes to teach us. And when you realize that we most frequently learn in response to being stressed, we can anticipate how God might teach us to rely on Christ and be content. Probably bring things that are challenging. On purpose. On purpose. God, to teach you to be content without much, will remove things from you so they don't have much, and show you, I have not left and I will not forsake. Trust me. Or God, to teach you to be content with plenty, will give you much. And then show you, still want more, don't you? Don't have enough, do you? There isn't ever enough stuff. But you have me and I have not left and I will not forsake. He undertakes in your life through, through any and every circumstance to teach you contentment in, every and every, in any and every circumstance. He's at work in and behind them all for your good to teach you. Not to be content, but to teach you to trust Him which will make you content. Believe in Christ, which is a call to us because we so often don't do it. Believe in Christ. Continue to preach to yourself. So, I invite you, just listen two or three sentences here, and take yourself in hand and say, this is the truth. God, help me to believe it. And show me in those moments, awaken me in those moments when I'm not believing it. Teach me. Continue to preach to yourself the gospel of this glorious eternally planned, sovereign, gracious saving of you. His beloved own. You. Not just someone out there. Me. Preach to yourself and to each other in your gospel partnership relationships until you actually believe that something so sweet as this can be true, that a wretched sinner like you who even today doesn't believe can be gloriously, marvelously saved as you are 
both those things. You need both those things. I'm, I'm not trying to like rain on your parade by calling you a wretched sinner. That's just the truth. That's okay. And in fact, it belongs on the plate because of the contrast. Amazing grace, he wrote, saved a wretch like me. What a tragedy that some modern revisers of that have tried to take out wretch because it's too negative. No, it makes this all the more glorious. He actually saved you. Amazing grace. That from eternity past, He knew you, Christian. Sent His Son, that Son, the Beloved One. Do you recall Christ? This is the Son who is the delight of the Father. He spent eternity looking at the Son filled with joy, said to that one, go to the cross to get him and her and him and her and all of them. Go get them. Someone might have said, wretches like them? Indeed, my beloved ones. That is true. He sent the Son to get you. He outpoured grace in a wonderful Savior. And then He moved you, opened your eyes, gave you life, and you saw. And if He did that, if since, if He did that, if He gave you that Son, gave you that Son, gave you that Son, and saved you to Himself, will He not also along with Him give you everything else you need? Of course. That is the truth. God has to teach that to us, to press it into you. So we, we come to God with that request in hand and say, Lord, please, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because you believe and you are an unbeliever. This, and it shows up every time in discontent and in anger and in worry. You wonder. May God graciously continue to teach you May He open your eyes to see that the circumstances that are challenging, that are hard, that are painful, that you hate, are actually under the hand of God, under the hand of God, for your good instruments in His hand to shape you, to teach you that which He means you to walk in, contented, joyful, thankful, peace that is audaciously bold because you are secure that is completely confident because He is trustworthy. 
We can speak this out loud in English, but it requires the, the, the gracious, powerful work of God on us to actualize it. So in the end, we just say, God, help. May you strengthen us with power in our inner beings, Father. May you give us strength to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love for us. May you give us grace that we would believe that you can do immeasurably far more than we ask or even imagine. Oh God, help your people. Give us faith to believe Christ. And through Him to rest content doing all things that You would have us to do. To be content and rejoice. To be content and return a a kind word. To be content and rest in peace. To be content and give thanks. To do all things as You strengthen us to believe that You are God, that You are near, that You are good, that You are enough. Help us, Father, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.